Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning. Whoa, that's pretty loud. You notice we have a new sound system. Today's the first day we are kind of using it, so we've got to work out the bugs. But I guarantee you, you'll hear me this. You will hear me. Let's take our, our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark. I'm coming, actually, I'm the, this is the last official message in the, in the Gospel of Mark. And um, so my plan, I think my plan will be uh, for the future after Mark is that I uh, probably will do the solos of Scripture because of the Reformation year, uh, you know, saved by faith, by grace, by Scripture, by Christ. And alone, and so I, I may do those, and then also I may uh, preach on the doctrines of grace because some people have not ever heard that, and then also um, I'll probably, and then I'll do two messages on um, the discipleship qualities in Mark. There's eight of them. I'll probably do that next, and then I'll do the other things. And eventually, I think I'm heading to First Peter. Uh, so. But this morning, we're in a, the last chapter of Mark, and <clears throat> as I mentioned last time, there is a problem. All right, and let me just give you the problem real quick. The problem is that there are um, at least four endings of the Gospel of Mark current in manuscripts, Greek manuscripts, that they know of. Uh, the first ending would be that the last 12 verses of this gospel uh, are not are actually absent from the oldest Greek manuscripts, from old Latin codex manuscripts, from sciatica manuscripts, uh, Syriac manuscripts, and 100 Aramean manuscripts, um, and two of the Georgian manuscripts. So there would be, in other words, it ends at verse number 8 in those manuscripts. Of course, um, the second view would be that several witnesses, including four Greek manuscripts of the 7th, 8th, and 9th centuries, as well as old Latin uh, manus- uh, actually versions, uh, they would say that um, there's plenty of witness to say that from verse 9 to 20, should be there in our Bibles. All right? And then, of course, the traditional ending, uh, so familiar to the authorized version uh, of other translations like the Texas Receptives, which we get the King James Version, the New King James Version. All right? And there are a vast amount of manuscripts, some 16 manuscripts, that contain the last... Uh, section of verses from 9 through verse number 20. Uh, So, now, saying all that, I I do have to say this, that um, none whatever view one has on this issue, there is really no contradiction to the teaching of the Christian faith. There's, uh, it's not going to, it's not going to uh, really diminish anyone's faith, whatever view they choose, because everything found in 
this passage is found in all the other Gospels, or at least, uh, and, or the rest of the Bible, I would say, except maybe one thing. All right, so you, you have to ask the question, well, how did this happen? Well, how did they actually uh, determine when it comes to manuscript evidence? Well, they determined, uh, determined it in, in actually three ways. Source, what they call source criticism, and what source criticism is, uh, what manuscripts, what or, original Greek manuscripts support a short ending or a long ending, all right? Secondly, text criticism, that's the external evidence, like manuscripts, versions of the Bible, and, of course, what the church fathers have said. That means the ones that uh, were discipled by the apostles, and those fathers, what did they say about the ending? And then, of course, there would also be internal evidence, like the language of the book. Is it consistent with what Mark already wrote? The vocabulary, is it the same vocabulary Mark used throughout the rest of the, the gospel, all right? The syntax, is it the same style? Is, is it the same context? Uh, what about the content in theology? Is it all there at the end? And then, of course, what's Mark's intention uh, at the end of the gospel? So all these things come into play when you decide whether... Uh, you include it or not. Now, if you notice in your Bibles, it probably all the Bibles you have in your hands include verses 9 through 20, right? All right, it includes it. All right, and then it has a little mark at the end of it. All right, it says uh, at the end, very end, it'll say, and they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions, and after that, Jesus himself sent out, sent out the, uh, through them from the east to the west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of the eternal salvation, right? So that is either in the short ending after verse number 8 or in the long ending after verse number 20, all right? But there's only very little manuscript evidence for that. That's why it's in brackets, all right? Now, uh, and of course, there's bibliology, the doctrine of uh, preservation. God, of course, preserved the scriptures through manuscript and testimony in their original text. So really, when we say we believe the Bible, what we're saying is that we believe what is written in the original manuscripts of Scripture. Right now, the, the thing is that, of course, you're going to think, you're going you're to ask, where, where, where do I land? Uh, of course, I'm going to tell you in a minute. Uh, but why would this problem come about? Uh, what happened? Well, several things happened. Uh, before I get to the text, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. This is like in a theo- for a theology class. But uh, Jerome, which was one of uh, a very important uh, church father, uh, really what he started doing is that when he wrote the Latin Vulgate, he included the long ending. All right, and the Latin Vulgate was, was extremely important and, and influential in the church. Uh, before the English Bible came about. And uh, so why did he include the long ending in the Latin Vulgate? Well, perhaps for the same reasons that it's uh, included in our Bibles today. Uh, Call it antiquity, traditional timidity, or not wanting to rock the boat. Um, Because in 400 A.D., 
a riot broke out in Tripoli where Jerome's translation of Jonah, chapter 4, verse number 6, was read publicly, and he used the word ivy instead of the word gourd, of course, uh, that described the plant that sheltered Jonah, if you remember in that minor prophet Jonah. Uh, And, of course, Augustine, St. Augustine, wrote to Jerome about the situation, pleading with him to temper how much he tampered with the traditional text. So even though Jerome wrote a, a defiant letter back, it is likely that there were limits to, to his alterations. So in other words, if a riot broke out over the description of a plant in Jonah, how much more chaos could result if Jerome had omitted Jesus' appearance to his disciples in Mark chapter 16. And then also, historically, a man named Victor of Antioch in the fourth, uh, the 5th and 6th centuries notes the very many copies of the gospel ended at verse number 8. And then he said a very many number of the gospels also ended at verse 20. Uh, So he weighs that out, and Victor is important because his commentary uh, was extremely popular on the Gospel of Mark in the later church. And of course, the testimony of the church fathers really has a very interesting trend to it. From the earliest discussion on the authenticity of, of this passage, the fathers indicated that most of the copies of Mark ended in verse number eight. Yet, In a later century, the short ending was increasingly looked on as unfavorable. And in the standard commentary on Mark in the Middle Age, the short ending was rejected, putting this on a a course which, uh, of course, in other words, the majority in the Middle Ages started as um, to be the popular one. And, of course, that's verses 9 from verse number 20. Of course, my, I would say, of course, we need to leave it alone. It's in the scripture. And um, I would find that um, as I think about it, as mentioning last time, this problem of the ending of Mark and the four endings of the gospel, the last ending had hardly any manuscript evidence at all. I didn't even mention that one. Uh, But in my reading and my research of the four endings, I, I would say this. One chapter, I'd say, man, I believe in the short ending. The next chapter I read, I believe in the long ending. You know, and I'd go back and forth like this because that's how it reads. I mean, you have convincing people to convince you of why you should believe this or that. But I think that, you know, as I considered it myself, say, what am I going to do about it? Um, I think that um, I'm kind of convinced about the long end. And my being convinced, now there are some questions and problems with that, but I'm convinced for this reason. I studied the passage, and I said, you know what? This does sound like how Mark would end this, right? He's very abrupt to the point, right? And he wants to put before the apostles their faltering faith, right, and challenge them about what they're supposed to do. And what are they supposed to do? Preach the gospel to the world. So I would say this. I think 
after studying the verse and looking at it, I think that the long ending is the ending. I really do. Now, of course, someone very much more smarter than me can convince me otherwise, but they can't convince me of what I see. And uh, it was even uh, R.C. Lenski, uh, who was a Lutheran, who wrote this, the gospel, he's talking about the gospel of Mark, shows careful consideration and harmonization well with its beginning, especially in this, that the apostles are ordered to preach the gospel in all the world, and they indeed did this. This is strong evidence for Mark's composition of this fitting conclusion. I agree with that. I believe that uh, it's there in Scripture. I do believe in the preservation of the Word of God, and God preserved it for us today. And I do think, except for two points, maybe, maybe one specifically, that possibly, I don't know how it got in there. All right? But so saying that, let's look at the passage and you decide for yourself, but I believe that this is definitely part of the message that Mark penned for his people. Now, as we look at that, and before I have a word of prayer, we're looking this now in this passage about the post-resurrection ministry of Jesus on earth. And you see something highlighted here. You see the kindness of the Lord himself. And in the backdrop, you see the eyewitness testimony of the post-resurrection Jesus and then unbelief or belief. That's what you see. All right, now let's see how that looks in Scripture this morning. But before I do that, let's pray. Lord, this morning, I pray that you would just lead us into your word. I pray that you would show us what Mark was intending to say here for us as he concludes this great gospel. And I pray, Lord, that we would really look at it ourselves in a way where we see the challenge that he, we see here and we, we, we notice the, the force that comes in this passage about what the apostles were supposed to be believing and what they were finally going to do. And I pray you would help us uh, to be comforted by this truth and yet at the same time be re- rebuked by it. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so the first thing that we're going to see is the kindness of the Lord manifested in Jesus. Remember, this is after his resurrection. He died on the cross. He is now resurrected, and now he is out of the tomb, and he's appearing to people. All right, now, if you notice in Mark, it says in Mark chapter 16, verse number 9, there's at least several appearances that are mentioned. Actually, there's three mentioned in Mark. The first one is Jesus appears to one person, and that person is Mary Magdalene. Notice in verse number 9. Now, after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. All right, that's the first person that he actually... uh, appears to. Now, the benefactor of Mary's condition and position is the Lord himself. 
In other words, because Jesus cast seven demons out of Mary, this put her in, uh, really put her on a course that made her foremost among the women. She was the foremost disciple. She was the one at the tomb. She was the one leading the women. She was unafraid of anything anybody would say. So Mary beheld the glorious body of of her Savior and testified that he was indeed living. So he appeared to her first. Now, what does Mary do after the appearance of the resurrection of Jesus? Well, she goes and she reports what she saw to who? To the disciples, right? Specifically to the apostles, right, that have already been chosen in the beginning of Mark. Now, notice what she, it says in verse number 10. It says, mourning, she finds them mourning and weeping. It says, she went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. Now, again, for your information, Mark is the only gospel that tells us the disciples were mourning and weeping. Weeping. Now, that's, that's an interesting thing the other gospels did not mention. So the disciples heard her testimony. But come on, who can believe a woman who was once riddled with demons? Can you, is her testimony really reliable? They really, I don't really think they considered her testimony reliable witness. And look at the text, what it says about the disciples' response to her witness in verse number 11. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. Now, this is the motif that Mark started in the beginning, this motif of unbelief. It's all over Mark, more than any of the Gospels. It's this thing of uh, challenging unbelief. Why? Because unbelief is such a deadly thing. It's a damning thing. It's an eternally damning thing. So if anybody's going to get this right, it has to be the apostles. So, see, to me, this would be appropriate language that a gospel writer would bring and and show us in the Word of God about how deadly it is to be in unbelief. All right, that's not it. Now, let's look at the second appearance. He appears to two in verse number 12 to th- and 13. It says there, after that, after Mary, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking on their way to the country. All right, let me stop right there. Now, even though Mark doesn't mention who they are, we know who they are. We know that these are the two disciples that were walking on the road to Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, right? Now, let's pick that up for a moment in, and turn your Bibles to Luke, right? Right there, you're right there in Luke. Go to chapter 24 and notice verse number 13, and then we're going to look down to verse number 27. Now, while you're turning there, following Christ's resurrection, Cleophas a fr- and a friend were going to Emmaus when they encountered another traveler on the road. Emmaus was a town in Judea that appeared in the book, all right, the Gospel of Luke. Notice in verse number 13. 
It says, and behold, this is Luke 24, verse 13, and behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. All right, now, let me stop for a minute. Two of the disciples were walking to Emmaus when they, of course, meet a stranger. Of course, the stranger is Jesus, but they don't recognize him, all right? And the reason why it says in the passage of Scripture because Jesus appeared in a different form. It, what it means there is that he, he was able to withhold his identity from them. It didn't mean, and actually it's the word morph in Greek, all right? You know, we get the, you know, these words to morph things, uh, you know, morphology, all right? Well, here he, in a sense, morphed himself where he was able to prevent others from recognizing who he was. Now, how he did that, I don't know. He has a resurrected body. Who knows what he, he did, right? So three travelers walked together, but the disciples did not recognize that stranger was Jesus, and Jesus asked them what they were talking about, and the disciples told him all about the resurrection, the empty tomb, how discouraged they were that things didn't work out like they hoped they would. And so look, pick it up at verse 14 of Luke chapter 24. And they were talking with each other about all the things which had taken place while they were talking and discussing. Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still and looking sad. One of them, named Cleophas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem, unaware of the things which had happened here in these days? Verse 19, And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. And all the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the, to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, beside all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that he had also that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive in verse 24. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman also said, but him they did not see. Now, if you notice that this is important, that the witnesses are witnessing to these two, these two men on the road to Emmaus, and they're believing the witness of the women. All right, they're believing the witness of the women. All right, now, what does Jesus do? Well, he rebukes them. Look at verse number 25. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them, was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. In other words, Jesus was saying, listen, the Old Testament's talking about me. And he explains it to them. And of course, later on it says, and their heart, when Jesus appeared, to, well, what happened is that they went on and they invited Jesus 
to uh, spend the night with him. And it's these three, uh, Jesus accepted their invitation and spent to spend the night. And as they were eating a meal, he blessed and broke it and gave it to them to eat. And at that very moment, the disciples recognized him and then he vanished from their sight. And they returned to Jerusalem to report the amazing event to the other apostles. So in other words, that Jesus unveiled himself to them, he he vanished out of their sight, and yet now they believed. So here in Mark, it tells us that these two travelers went back and reported their encounter with the resurrection. With, of course, uh, with the resurrected Jesus. Now let's turn back to Mark chapter 16. Notice verse number 13. So, in other words, what was the disciples' response to their witness? Well, look at what it says in verse 13. They went away and reported it to the others. The others are the apostles. But they did not believe them either. Do you see what's going on here? That the ones who ought to believe are not believing. But everybody else is believing. The women are believing their testimony is true, but now the disciples are not believing. Now, if you remember, way back when I started preaching in Mark, I mentioned the greatest wickedness that exists among humanity. And you remember, it was this, unbelief. It's still unbelief. Unbelief is a wickedness in the world. Unbelief is a special evil because unbelief tends to make the heart evil and an evil heart has a tendency to turn away from the living God. In fact, that's what it says in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse number 12, it says, Take care, brethren, that there not be any one among you with an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. In other words, if someone remains in unbelief, they will fall away from anything they knew about the true and the living God. There are several things, actually, that will take place when someone falls away from and and stays and remains in unbelief. The first thing that takes place is that They will turn their affections toward the world and what it has to offer and what how it concludes issues. Because it says this in the book of Acts, when the people heard Moses and his testimony and they didn't believe him, it says in Acts chapter 7, verse 39, our fathers were unwilling, unwillingly to be obedient to him, that's Moses, but repudiated him in their hearts and turned back to Egypt. See, that's what happens. A person turns back to what they know if they are in unbelief. And of course, they start worshiping what they can make with their own hands. In other words, they end up as an idolater. Whatever the idol they want to make in their mind, uh, they'll make it. This is what it says in Acts. It says, saying to Aaron, that was, of course, uh, Moses' brother who did most of the speaking, make make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt 
We do not know what happened to him. And then it says in verse 41 of that chapter of chapter 7 of Acts, and at that, at that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. There it is. That's the sense of idolatry, that if a person remains in unbelief, they will, that doesn't mean they stop worshiping. It doesn't mean they stop being religious. It doesn't mean any of those things. What it means is they, they just replace it with something else, or they continue or go back to their old system, or they go back to their old philosophical framework. They go back to what they know. That's what they do. Or they're influenced by the world, and that's why we have so many, uh, you know, people go to fortune tellers, they go to hand and card readers, they go to articulate professors, they go to a feisty talk show host who really have become the moral and spiritual compass of our day, get that, and many people listen to them uh, as if they know the truth and they're leading people the right way. To me, it's just a pooling of ignorance and foolishness when you you listen to them speak. So that's what they do. A second thing that happens if somebody remains in unbelief is that, and they stay on the path of unbelief, is that God will turn away from them and give them up to the twisted desires of their own heart, that God will hand them over to worship the gods they prefer. That's what will happen. And that's exactly what happens when somebody rejects God's revelation and rejects Jesus Christ. So if a person rejects God's general revelation in creation, And then when God's special revelation is unfolded to them and they reject that also, then in both cases, the only thing left for that person to do is to remain an idolater. There's no other place to go. Looking outside of God's plan for deliverance and blessing always leads to further bondage. Always. And of course, Hebrews tells us that try to prevent people from staying in unbelief. Try to prevent people from having an evil heart of unbelief where it says, but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Specifically deceitfulness of a God that you make in your own mind that you think you ought to worship, or that's the way you think God ought to be, or God would never do that. You know, God's too loving to send someone to a place called hell. So I don't worship that God. Well, if you don't worship that that God and you even call that God Jesus, you have the wrong God. That's not the God of the Bible. So I'm saying all this to say how unbelief is a very damning sin. And many times when people come to Christ, they're, they're coming, turning from their unbelief to believe in Jesus, and they're turning from their idolatry to believe in Jesus. What they've been, what they've been worshiping, they're turning to Jesus, and they're believing in him. All right, now, with all saying all that, no, let's, let's look back at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verse 14, and see how Jesus handles unbelief in his own disciples 
who will eventually function as apostles. In verse number 14, Jesus appears to the eleven, and we see the kindness of the Lord shown to them in in his rebuke. Notice what it says, after, verse 14, after he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. So the disciples, in other words, are rebuked for their unbelief and for the spiritual condition of their heart. They had hearts, in other words, their mind, their emotion, their will, refused to bend and yield to the proper evidence that Jesus indeed had risen from the grave. They refused to listen to the witnesses that God had already produced at that time. They refused to witness, uh, take their witness as legitimate. And Again, for your information, Mark is the only one of the Gospels who tells us that the disciples were reclining at the table, dining. So, in other words, not believing the witnesses the Lord sends across our path is a very serious matter. Some will say, well, I didn't see any miracles. When I prayed to the Lord to give me money, he didn't give me any. I've never heard his voice, so I conclude that religion is a crutch. I don't need need to believe in God, and I don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. If you need to believe it in order to get by, then that's fine. You believe it, but I don't believe it. See, the Lord will say to those with similar stories, well, I sent a co-worker to you, and that co-worker shared the gospel with you. And you didn't believe that witness. Or I had that faithful Christian aunt and uncle during holidays. They used to share the gospel with you during the holidays. And they lived the gospel before your eyes. And you didn't listen to them. And what about that faithful Sunday school teacher uh, that you had as a youth that shared the gospel with you many, many times and many, many lessons until you thought you had grown up out of those children Bible stories and didn't believe yet. Or that little church that preached the gospel two times a year when you decided to attend church for Christmas and Easter. That's if it was, if you weren't, uh, they were not too busy doing something else that was more attractive to pull you away from your biannual door darkening of a church. See, all those things, in other words, everyone who sits here today was witness to somebody. Every one of us, even those who did not believe, people were wit- came alongside of them and they shared the gospel with them. They shared why their life was different with them. You know, those witnesses are ordained by God. So if you decide not to listen to someone, when it may be the only witness God may send you, and you remain in your unbelief, you are guilty. All right? You are guilty of unbelief. You, are, you remain in that condition. Of course, obviously, the Lord takes our ambassadorship 
Seriously. We're ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors do not come with their own agenda. They do not come on their own authority. Ambassadors come with the agenda of another on the authority of another. We witness on the authority of Jesus Christ. In other words, we Christians are aliens in this world and have been called by Christ to bring the word of God, the gospel, to the world that is steeped in darkness. And that's our own family. That's the people we work with. That's the people we rub shoulders with, elbows with. We see every single day we're responsible for them. We can't be silent. In other words, you and I are witnesses. We are witnesses to this message. And thankfully, thankfully, at the end, all the disciples do believe And they, of course, believe with a world-conquering faith. You wouldn't be sitting here if they didn't believe. Because their witness went to the next person, which went to the next generation, to the next century, all the way up until the present. And we're still witnessing the truths of the gospel. So the apostles are commissioned to take this life-giving gospel to the world, right? So that's what we see next. So we see now the unbelief being dealt with. Now we see, okay, after unbelief is what? Well, let's what it says in verse number 15 of Mark. All right, here's the command. Verse 15, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Isn't that the command we have? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Right, it doesn't matter who they are. If they're a creature, a human being created in the image of God, they are a candidate for our witness, right? doesn't matter what religion they came from. doesn't matter what they were born into. doesn't matter the color of their skin. doesn't matter anything about them, their culture. We're to witness to them. We are to bring the gospel to them. That's what we're supposed to do. Now, of course, there's terms of the gospel. You know, the gospel is always a two-edged sword. It's sharp on the top of the sword, and it's sharp on the bottom of the sword right? It's a two-edged sword. It's going in very sharply into someone's heart. So there's two, if we're looking at the top and the bottom of a sword being sharp, what's the top part of the sword? It says in verse number 16, it says this, of course, the term is this, Christ the Savior, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. There is the sharp end of the top end of the sword, The gospel is to be preached to all nations of people with one divine purpose, that they all would believe, that they would all be rescued from their unbelief and their idolatry. That's the goal. The mission reaches to the end of time until the Lord comes back. We're never to stop doing this as a church. And, of course, believing is that trust and confidence in the heart that rest fully upon the gospel, embracing the entire course of believing. I believe it all. I don't understand it all, but I believe it all because the one it comes from is the God of truth who cannot tell a lie. So I believe it. And as I grow in Christ, I'm understanding more of what I believe. Isn't isn't that why we're here? We're understanding more of who he is, of what we're supposed to believe and what we're supposed to do. And we see here what we're supposed to do is make sure that we speak forth the gospel. So this believing is embracing the whole thing, which includes in our passage 
identifying in the Lord in believers' baptism. All right? So, in other words, believing in Christ and baptism go together. In baptism, Christ identifies with the sinner. When we become believers and confess Christ as our Lord and Savior, we identify with Christ in his death and his burial and his resurrection. Right? So we're identified with his work he did on our behalf. And, of course, that becomes a public thing where we stand in the water. And when we, as we stand in the water, it's, it's a, our old life. When we go down in the water, we're being buried, right, to our sin and our old life. When we come back up out of the water, we're raised to resurrection, a new life, right? We're, now we're new believers. The old life is, I'm not going to obey the devil anymore. I'm not going to live for him or the world or, or even my whole own remaining corruption. I want to live now for Christ. I have a new life in Christ. So Jesus saves those who believe and keep, he keeps them saved. Saved with a salvation once for all. As it says, Jesus rescues and delivers believers from moral danger of death and judgment. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then it says more than much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So initially, what are we saved from? We're saved from God's condemnation and wrath upon our sin, upon who we are. The only way we're going to be saved from that is to believe in Jesus. There's no other way. There's no other one who can save us from that. So a Christian can stand and declare, I have been saved. You know you're saved today. Can you declare that with with 100% confidence that you are saved, that my whole position has changed from one of not being saved to one of being saved, one one of being condemned to one of being free from God's condemnation? In other words, we are moved from one place to another from the place of not being a Christian to the place of becoming a real biblical Christian, persevering right to the end. Are, are you that kind of Christian? Do you know that for sure? Are there any doubts in your mind that if you were to die today, where you would end up? You gotta, you have to, those doubts have to be cleared up. In Scripture, there's a boldness that God gives us about being Christian. If you don't have the boldness, you won't witness. Because you don't believe you, you're, you are what you're supposed to be. As a believer, boldness comes from believing. I believe these things. I believe all of it. And so, therefore, I can proclaim it. I can preach it with confidence. I don't doubt it at all that this is the truth, that I'll go to my grave preaching it because it is the truth. There's nothing else that can save you and I. Jesus Christ's death satisfied God's judgment on sin. So because of that, the removal of God's anger towards sinners, and of course, that's the appeasing of God's wrath. When I believed in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, God, Jesus Christ removed God's wrath from me, and now I have become his friend. I'm at peace with him because of the blood of Christ. That's the top end edge of the sword. What's the bottom of the edge of the sword? Look at verse 16. It says, the middle of the verse, but he who has disbelieved, there it is again, shall be condemned. Is that not clear? I love 
Mark for this reason. He does not mince with words. He doesn't go on this long thing. If you want to know what to believe, here it is. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. But here's the other end. He who has disbelieved shall be condemned. In other words, every time you and I witness, every time the gospel is, uh, is preached, it's going out to either save or condemn. That's sobering. That's serious. So here's, here's a very sobering thought. A person that comes to disbelieve and remain in disbelief at that moment shall have the verdict of condemnation pronounced upon them by Christ, the judge of all people. So the final judgment is a day that has been set with eternity, with actually certainty that God will judge the world. And all those who have not repented will receive God's justice. All those who have repented and trusted in his son, Jesus Christ, will receive mercy and escape the just wrath of God. If you neglect the only great means of salvation to escape God's wrath, well, you'll stand alone to face the justice of God. It will not be a matter then of how can I escape, but the cold, firm reality is there is no escape. You realize that when people stand before Jesus, there is no longer escape. That's what unbelief will do. The gospel will go out, go out to save, and the gospel will go out to condemn. That's the power of the gospel. See, God hates all sin, and his righteous character demands that he punish sin, not just a few sins, all sin. For it tells us in Exodus, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God will take care of that. All right, let me uh, look at the last part of this, and then I'll close. All right, here's the promise of the resurrected Lord that's given by Mark. And the promise is actually, I would say, first of all, that God is going to say to his disciples, I'll be with you. And how does he tell them that? Well, if you notice in verse number 17, it says, these signs will accompany those who have believed. All right? Now, remember, signs specifically were for the apostles. Signs were credentials for the apostles and their gospel message to specifically show that the Lord Jesus was present with them. All right? So it says there in verse number 17... It says, signs will accompany those who have believed in my name. They will cast out demons, right? So who in the beginning of Mark were able to cast out demons? Not everyone. Only the apostles were able to do it, right? It says in Mark 3.14, and he appointed 12 so that they would 
be with him, and he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So right there, we see that. And the second thing, they will speak in new tongues. That would be not gibberish, not languages that cannot be understood, but this is foreign languages that had never been learned by the speakers, but were perfectly understood by those who spoke the language. All right, that's what it's talking about there, right? They will speak, be able to preach the gospel. Where do we stay? We see that in the book of Acts. They preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to the Jews, to the Samaritans, and we see the manifestation of tongues that they heard these guys preaching in their own language when they knew they didn't never study that language or could not speak that language. So in the spirit, if you're going to get the gospel out, you're that would be a signed gift to the apostles to make sure that would happen. All right? And the next thing is that they would pick up serpents. All right? Now, we do know that in Acts chapter 28, there is a section in that part where Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on a fire, and a viper, a snake, came out and uh, because of the heat of the fire and fastened onto his hand. And the, the Bible tells us in Acts that the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand and began to say to one another, undoubtedly this man is a murderer. And though he had, uh, has been saved from the sea when they got saved from the shipwreck, uh, justice has not allowed him to live. And they were waiting for Paul to blow up and keel over dead. Well, he doesn't keel over dead. He shook off the creature, and uh, he didn't swell up. He didn't fall down dead. And, of course, uh, they waited for a long time for that to happen, and nothing happened. All right, so we see that, again, Paul being an apostle, that particular one took place, and uh, he was able to preach the gospel to them. And then we also know that he was able to heal people right there on the island of Malta there in, uh, after that shipwreck. And then it says there, and if they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Now, the drink, any deadly poison, is found nowhere in the Bible except here. So, see, that would be a question that people have. Why is that there? Um, of course, the other one that, you know, he, they would lay hands on people, and they would be healed, that's all over the Scriptures. That's all over the ministry of the apostles, right? All of those are saying this. Listen, when you go out there, apostles, and preach, and the word of God's not written yet, uh, I'm going to give you these signs to prove that they're divine and come from heaven, and the message you have comes from God. And so these signs are going to be accompanying your message. I'm going to be with you, right? And so that's what he's saying there. And then in Mark chapter 16, verse number 19, it says, So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. So he, gave, he gives them the commission, as all the other Gospels have done, all right? And he goes to heaven. Uh, and, of course, that is all over the word of God. We know that. And, and, but remember, when Jesus ascended into heaven, what did he tell his disciples to do? Go right out and preach the gospel? No, go wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon you. And don't do a thing until the Spirit of God is poured out upon you, and then you'll be witness to me in, in you know, in Jerusalem, Judea, and in the other part of the world. And then the unfinished work of Christ has been given to not only the disciples, but to us. 
In verse number 20, it says, And they went out and preached everywhere, and while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. Now, usually that's where it ends. That's where the gospel of Mark ends, right there in verse number 20. Now, you have that other added section there that has really uh, very little manuscript evidence, so that's why they put that in brackets. That's probably one thing that wasn't there. Uh, so either that was connected in verse number 8 or it was connected in verse number 20. So that, there's the message of Mark. I, so I, when I looked at this, I said, obviously, I, I believe this is exactly what Mark intended to conclude his, his uh, gospel with. Because it seems like everything he said in the gospel kind of like comes out very rapidly in the last section. And then he commissions, Jesus ascends into heaven, he commissions his disciples, and then that commission is also given to us. All right, so the apostles have to be firm in what they believe so they can preach with boldness. And God says, I'm, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to work with you. Don't work. I'm, like it says in Matthew, I'll never leave you or forsake you, right? I'll never depart from you. And has that come true? Yes. We're some 2,000 years plus uh, separated from this particular point in history, and the gospel's still going out, right? People are still getting saved. You're, you got saved, right? You who, who know Christ are here because somebody witnessed to you. The gospel of Jesus Christ came to you. You repented. You had a change of mind about who God is and who Christ is. And because repentance means you ask certain questions about God. See, does God make a difference to me in my life? Does my life in any way confirm that I believe in him? Have I been living as I had an endless lease on life and will never die? Or what am I? How am I living? What is the purpose of life? What's the end going to be? See, repentance changes our mind about not only who God is in Christ Jesus, but about what we are supposed to believe and how we're supposed to believe that. Because it's also a redirection of our heart towards Jesus by the preaching of the word of God. The scriptures reveal the status and the dignity and the significance of Jesus Christ. And it is clear that Jesus is the central person and focus of God's program for salvation of all men and women everywhere at all times, and it never has been different. Believing the gospel means to obey the message concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he is God's own way of salvation, and that God sent Jesus to the cross that God put all our sin on him and punished them in him, that's what we ought to believe. That's what the scriptures teach. So believing the gospel means that you stop all self-justification, every reliance upon your good deeds and your own efforts, and you believe simply in the work of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners on the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection.
And so what is the gospel of Mark supposed to do for us too? Well, remember, it's the gospel about the servant, right? The servant, Jesus Christ. So it should do the same for us. Once we grasp the message, once we are 100% sure we have been saved by Jesus Christ and we're, we have the Spirit of God living in us, then we're called to be the servants of Jesus Christ. All right? He's our master. We are his servants. And we're to serve Jesus Christ in order to serve his people so that they may hear the gospel from our mouth, from our life, and so that they may be saved and brought to maturity. That's the whole purpose of God's plan, to save us, to bring us into maturity, and then to bring us into the presence of God. That's how it's working. You've got to make sure that you're on that path. Do you know? If you, I, believe me, if you're here today and you do not know 100% that you're saved, please talk to me. Pull somebody aside and tell them you don't, you're not sure. And young people, I do want to challenge you. Don't go through the rest of your life thinking this is, this is something that you don't need to believe. This is something you should believing, be believing right now in your life and growing in your knowledge and wisdom of Jesus Christ. Because young people are definitely the next generation of Christians. I pray they be strong ones and they be firm in the faith, believing the scriptures and believing and, uh, the scriptures in a way they can speak of it with boldness, not ashamed to talk about it with family, friends, or anybody else. Just want to tell people about Jesus Christ. And in doing so, people get saved. People come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And God's work goes on. So that's the end of Mark. It's been a long journey. I started in 2014. Actually, the end of the year. So that's about what? I don't know how long it is, but... It's a long time, but I, I thought it was very interesting gospel and uh, very helpful in bolstering my faith in, in, in the truth. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for allowing us to have the gospels in our hand. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that contained in them are the very truths that we need to be saved. Lord, I'm very aware of that when the gospel goes out, it goes out as a two-edged sword. It's either going to save and rescue some from, someone from unbelief, or it's going to condemn someone in their unbelief. And I pray, Lord, that as long as somebody has breath and red blood running through their veins, I pray, Lord, that you would always give them chance to be saved. Convict their heart, Lord, of sin, of your righteousness and judgment. And Holy Spirit, you know you're the necessary condition for us to be able to say yes to Christ. So Lord, convict us so we see Christ as the only solution to be rescued from the condemnation of our sin. And I pray that we would confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead And in doing so, Lord, save us and let us see the evidence 
of salvation in our life with a changed mind and a changed will and even changed emotions about you, Lord, that we would come to love you because of the great things you've done in our stead and on our behalf. So this morning we want to give you praise and glory for all that has been done and all that you will continue to do in our life. We look forward someday, Lord, to being with you in your presence. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.